this weekend, six of our young adults are uh, serving uh, the Lord and uh, other churches. I want to encourage you with that because uh, Cole Stovall is preaching to Disciple Nell down at First Baptist Church, Sinton, where uh, his previous youth minister, uh, who you, uh, Josh Robinson, is pastor. Josh, if you remember, was an intern here for a period of time. His parents are here today. Uh, he is pastor now at First Baptist Sinton, and uh, Cole had the privilege to go down there and preach. All the while, five of our young adults are serving as a worship team at First Baptist Church Stockdale, Texas, where they're leading worship for Disciple Nil. We're in all measures, or at least in some measures, revival has broken out. Uh, Kevin, uh, that's where Kevin Skinner is pastor, who served here for 12 years. The preacher for that revival is Zach Hudson, who had served here uh, in, in this church and kind of grew up for a little over 10 years, and uh, in addition to that, one of our interns, uh, Palmer, is down there serving as their youth minister and has been down there for a year. So I want, you to, I want you to understand how God is at work in his kingdom through First Baptist Church of Otago. Now, I'll leave that out because I, I, I want to address something else right now that, that is uh, on my heart, on my mind, and many of the others, and that is what is going on at Asbury University right now. Uh, it used to be Asbury College. Asbury University is a small Methodist university in Wilmer, Kentucky, in a rural location. Asbury has a history of uh, God using Asbury in a mighty way. What was known as the Jesus Movement in the 1970s and the 1980s, it actually had a huge impact uh, throughout our nation. In fact, a lot of scholars of revival, students of revival, say that that was the last widespread movement of God in the United States. It was over 50 years ago. It began in 1970 in a chapel service at what was then Asbury College. Well, about two weeks ago, God began to move in a chapel service at what now Asbury University in that same chapel. They began to worship the Lord by all accounts. I haven't been there myself, but by all accounts, they began to worship the Lord with fervency and with a desire simply to lift up and praise the name of Jesus. There's very little preaching, very little testimony. There's been some confession. There's been prayer. That service that began at 9 a.m. that morning, almost two weeks ago, is still going on. One testimony is there's a line. Yes, there's a line a half mile long waiting to get into that auditorium. And Asbury University has opened two more auditoriums for overflow areas, for people that are simply wanting to come and praise and worship the Lord. It's a revival that is marked by worship more so than preaching or prayer as many of uh, various revivals in the past have been marked. And so, you know, the anytime that God moves like this, there's a couple things that happen. And, and I saw a, a small breath of God that moved through several universities and across the seminary campus in 1995. I, I had the privilege of being there when the, the service, the chapel service lasted for eight hours as God began to move. But it didn't just start there. It started at Howard Payne University a couple weeks before, actually at Coggin Avenue Baptist Church and Brown went through some Howard Payne students. And, and it was not as widespread. But any time that God moves like that, you have the naysayers, 
You have the religious people who will stand back and say, well, God doesn't work like that. He's never worked like that in my life. The only measure that we need to assess what's going on at Asbury is God's word. And if we'll just simply trust God to do what God's going to do, because you cannot fit God in a box. If God desires to move in a mighty way, when God has moved like that, widespread across our nation in the past, millions of people eventually come to faith in Christ because of that movement. And that is my prayer for Asbury's revival movement that, that has begun to happen there. Now, it began as students were coming together to pray and worship. And that is the mark of what's happening there right now. We have been praying every Tuesday night for two years. Really, I believe it began this week, two years ago. We've missed a few Tuesday nights for holidays and things like that. But by and large, a group gathers right here in this auditorium Tuesday night at 6.30. We pray for 30 minutes. We meet. We have an introductory scripture that we read. We split up into small groups and we pray for the lost. We write down the names of lost people on a card. We've seen people that we wrote their names down come to faith in Christ after we prayed fervently for them over time. We've had you know, as many as 15 or 20, we've had as few as six come to pray on Tuesday night. But if we're going to see a movement of God here in the Metroplex, in our church, it's going to come when we humbly bow down and confess, pray, and seek the Lord with all of our heart. It doesn't matter if it's six or if it's 600. God hears the prayer of those saints who gather, especially, I can guarantee you there's one prayer that God always hears. That's when we pray for a lost soul to be saved. When we pray, well, what does it mean to pray in Jesus's name, according to his will? When we pray for a lost soul to be saved, I started out with three on my card. I have two now because one of them I know is saved. I'm going to implore you to to not miss out on what God is doing. The last thing that I want as a pastor was for it to be said when it comes to the end of my days, man, God brought a vast revival to the United States, but Dennis missed it. He was busy doing something else. One of the most beautiful things I've seen about this movement at Asbury is it's student-led. They have a group of students who rotate through, through uh, to lead the congregation or lead those who gathered in worship for two hours at a time. They've had famous Christian authors and musicians and pastors reach out to the university and reach out to leadership and offer their, uh, uh, offer themselves to come free to, to be involved and to help out. And in every case, they've been turned down. They said, you're welcome to come. You can sit in the back. But this is not going to be about people and personalities. It's about Jesus. Oh, that our heart would come to the place that when we come in here, it would not be about what we want, but we think we can gain. Whether we like the songs or not, or we like the music style or not, or we like that Matthew or in today's case, Stephen, they read a lot of scripture or not. Let it be that we come to worship Jesus because he and he alone is worth it.
What ifs? God, in God's plan, he wants you or me or First Baptist Church Watauga to be one little cog. In a vast, you imagine how complex your car is with all of the gears and, and all of the electronics that are in your car and everything it takes for the wheels to turn and the brakes to stop and the, the, the steering wheel to guide the car. What if we were one cog on one gear that made that vehicle run? What if we were one cog in what God desires to do in this nation to bring revival? I want to be that cog. When I was a student at in Leander High School, we went to Super Summer as a leadership conference several times. And I remember sitting in a congregation on one of the last nights of Super Summer, and the pastor used an illustration. And after this, I'm going to lead us in prayer. We'll jump into the sermon. This, this part of the sermon leads to it. But the pastor stood up, and he asked a group of, of adults at his church, and he said, you know, if, if, if life is like a train, God's plan and God's, God's will is like like a train. What part of, of the train do you want to be? One guy raised his hand. He said, I'd like to be the tracks. I'd, be, I'd like to be the one who provides direction and guidance. And another guy says, well, I'd, I'd like to be, uh, you know, like the engine. I'm, I want to be the one that's up front and leading and pulling. And the lady in the back said, you know, I'd rather just be the caboose. I'm just along for the ride. Uh, I'll do my part from the rear, but I don't want to be up front. And one older gentleman raised his hand and he said, I, I just want to be a piece of coal. The pastor said, just one piece of coal, and he said, yeah, I just want to burn all out for Jesus until I'm done. That's my prayer, is that whatever God has for us, whatever role he might have for First Baptist Watauga or for me, as he's, I believe, God is preparing to bring an awakening to our nation, that we're willing to be a piece of coal, if that's what it takes, just to burn all out for him. Let's pray. Father, we pray right now for the students, the staff, the leadership at Asbury University that you seem to be using to bring a mighty move. I know that national news stations have reached out and have been asked not to come. Leaders of worship bands, famous preachers who desired to come, they're welcome, but not to leave. Lord, I pray that Jesus continue to be the highlight. He continue to be the one who is worshipped. That your word, all of it, from beginning to end, is upheld. The scripture is preached and the truth of scripture is proclaimed. And that in the movement of your Holy Spirit, where oftentimes when the wind blows mightily, it'll stir up some things that are undesirable. Trash will get caught up in the wind. But Lord, don't let us miss the wind. Don't let us miss your spirit. Because and get distracted by the garbage that might get stirred up. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that you can teach us that you would prepare our hearts to be that cog in the wheel, that one part of one gear, in your kingdom, to accomplish your purposes. We pray in your precious name, Lord. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 6, which is a challenging passage. It's about uh, the, the wickedness of the world 
and that led to God's severe discipline and judgment. Read a quote today that I thought you'd appreciate. Some of this I, I took out key words so that it would help uh, you see where we're headed. Then a textbook, it says, it would be easy to multiply testimonies showing how exhausted of living religion, how black with every kind of wickedness was the nation of that day. False doctrine was gaining momentum. Christianity had become a deluded expression of impotent tradition. The clergy were the most barren in their faith. They were more concerned with political unity than spiritual fervency. Then the entertainment industry contributed to the moral decay. One of the sources of conflict was the, the government sought to keep people divided into classes. I read through a couple chapters of the situation that the world found itself in, Great Britain in particular, in the 18, take that back, in the 1730s. Now, what I just read could be a description of our wicked generation, couldn't it? Hear it again. It would be easy to multiply testimonies showing how exhausted this nation is of living true religion. How black we are with every kind of wickedness. I think of the Grammys just two weeks ago when you had someone on stage dressed as Satan and, and figures dancing around uh, that satanic figure worshiping. And even CBS, who was, uh, had the Grammys on their station, on their Twitter had someone say, let's get ready to worship. And so you had five, this five-minute display of, of rank satanic worship. Our culture, our entertainment industry are in such moral decay that it's hard to fathom that it could ever have been this bad before. But it has. It's been this bad many times in our nation. And the only hope when a nation reaches that point, that level of wickedness is for God to breathe a spiritual awakening into the land. Read with me Genesis chapter 6. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward. When the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil at that time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and he was deeply grieved. The Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl and the birds of the sky for I regret that I made Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the records of 
Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. This is a confusing and challenging passage for many, and it's really easy to get caught up in, in uh, verses 2, 3, and 4 with this description of the sons of God and the daughters of men. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit to give you a, 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 at least some direction there. But I want us to, to not get so caught up in the weeds that we miss, miss the main point of the text, because that's what this is about. God has a message for us. And the first thing that I want you to notice here in the first few verses, verses 1 through 4, is man's destructive decisions. The bottom line is, man had made a decision that they're going to do things the way they want to do things, regardless of what God has told them to do. Now, this sounds like what took place in the garden, doesn't it? And, and so I'm going to spend a little bit of time here because you have this issue. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took them as they chose for wives for themselves. Now, there's three different ways that you can interpret that phrase. The sons of God took the, the daughters of men. There's some who believe that the sons of God were, were simply men of great significance. They were, they were leaders. They were, they were uh, men of a prominence that took these daughters of men. Others, uh, another, probably one of the more, more uh, prolific uh, views of this text that you'll hear out there, is that these were fallen angels, that the sons of God were somehow angelic beings who had fallen uh, from heaven because of their sin, and they were taking on wives from men. A third option is that they were sons of Seth. It's one of the views that are out there. Now, one of the things that, that would push back against this idea of these being fallen angels is in verse 3, uh, there's a word that's specifically used there that says that they were of flesh. Now, we don't get that in our Christian standard version. Uh, in verse Three, it says, the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. That word corrupt in the Hebrew literally means flesh. Okay? If you have a New American Standard in front of you, that's the, ver or that's the translation that you're going to see. Right, Stephen? Yeah. He's got his head bob over there. Yeah, that the word literally means the flesh. So these sons of God uh, that are described here were flesh. Now, why would they be called sons of God? It may very well have been as simple as this. It was men who were followers of God, so to speak, or a part of the lineage who said they were following God, but they were choosing wives who weren't followers of God. Think forward to when Moses is writing this. One of the big issues he had that he was dealing with was trying to teach the young men, the young Hebrew boys, not to marry outside of their faith, right? Not to just pick a wife because she was beautiful, but to pick a wife because she was one of God's, okay? And I think that that's probably one of the best translations here is an understanding that it was men who were supposed to be followers of God who were just taking wives from, from outside of their faith because they look good. Now, the bottom line is, what you have here is mankind ignoring God's desires, God's plan, and just doing what they want to do. They chose wives for themselves. They saw the beauty, and they chose for themselves. They didn't let God choose. 
They didn't see God's direction. They saw something that looked good and they took it. Just like Eve did in the garden. She saw something that looked good for food and she took it. And, and it goes back to that heart of, of selfishness that runs rampant in our human flesh. And so the bottom line here is twofold. I'm going to give you a little bit more uh, in that second. First one is this. When we give no thought to God's direction, sin will run rampant. See, the sons of God at this point, they weren't given any consideration of what God wanted. They were picking and choosing what they wanted. Whatever they desired, they were doing. And God says, when they pick and choose for themselves, when they do it their way, I'm not going to let my, my spirit remain with them. I'm not going to put up with them. And in fact, one of the interesting things that happens here, uh, this past is at the end of one of the major breaking points. I haven't got into a, a lot of the structure of Genesis. It's divided by a, a Hebrew word, toledot, uh, that the, the author seems to use as a primary uh, dividing point. At the end of verse 8, or at the beginning of verse 9, you see that word again. So this is a, a passage that fits at the end of Genesis 1 through 5. So Genesis 1, 1 through really down through 6, 8. And what you'll notice about that is the age that people lived. We, if you read Genesis chapter 5, you'll see that people were living 500 to 1,000 years almost. When we come to Genesis chapter 6, God says, no more. From this point forward, the, the, the vast uh, or the, the length of their days is going to be 120 years. That's it. I'm cutting them off with that. We're not going to have any more 900-year-old people walking around it. We don't have time or need to get into all the theology of that because I want us to keep on point. Man's destructive decisions, God, man deciding we're going to do it our way, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, is what caused witness to spread throughout the land. When we do as we please, regardless of God's direction, we do it generally for about five reasons. Now, these are mine. I think you see them in Scripture, and you can see them in this text to some extent. Well, the first one is this. Well, hear it again. We do as we please, regardless of God's direction, because, okay? Number one, we think we know better than God. We think we have a better plan than God does. We don't like God's plan. Generally, God's way of getting us out of a difficult circumstance is to take us through it. We don't want to go through it. We want out of it. Oftentimes, we think that God's plan is better than our plan. I mean, that by saying sometimes we think our timing is better than God's timing. So we don't wait on God. Sometimes we disobey God or we ignore God what he says, because we don't care what he says. We live in a culture today that, that, that will say something like this. Well, I know the scripture says, but. And if we come to a point where we don't care what scripture says, sin is going to run rampant in our land. When we just completely ignore God's direction and God's will, God's word, sin is going to become rampant. We get tired of waiting on him. This goes back to what I said a little while ago. We get tired of waiting on him. We don't like his timing, so we're not going to wait. You see this happen uh, 
with King David at one point. He's waiting on God to do something. God doesn't get there quick enough, so he does it his own way. He gets in trouble over it. Oftentimes, we get ourselves in trouble because we're unwilling to wait on God. We want it now. We don't want to wait. And when we don't wait for God's timing, we'll miss his very best. In fact, sometimes we just go off and do our own thing because he hasn't moved quick enough. Third, because we don't even believe he exists. You know, I'm looking around this group, and this point probably does not fit here. But it might with some of your kids or grandkids or good friends. If they don't believe there is a God, certainly they're not going to wait to hear what God has to say. And when we get to a point where our culture has more people who don't believe there is a God than those who do believe there is a God, when there's more atheists or more agnostics in the culture, sin is going to run rampant in the land. And we're in a nation that is quickly getting to that point where there are many people who don't even believe that there is a God. They've found ways or they've come up with, with reasoning to write off God. And then fifth, sometimes we believe God has a better plan. We'll set this one up. Sometimes we, we believe he has a better plan. Sometimes, you know, we're willing to wait. We certainly believe there's a God, but sometimes we just take what we want anyway. We just give in to our lust. That could be, be lust, as it's often used in our culture, as a sexual type of lust, but it could be a, a lust for things. We just don't, we, we've just decided, you know, this is probably not what's best for me. This is probably not what God uh, would tell me to do. This is not what God wants for me, but I'm going to do it anyway because it feels good. I'm going to do it. I think oftentimes we find ourselves in a mess because we simply give in to our lust, even when we know it's not what's best for us. When we move that direction, regardless of God's direction, we, we move forward in sin, our world is going to become more and more and more steeped in wickedness. And that's essentially what you saw happen here by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6. God was grieved and he was angry and, and he was done. Read verses 5 through 8. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. God was grieved by human sin. God created us for a love relationship with himself, and we got to a point where we did not care what he had to say. We're going to do it our, our way anyway. We're going to do it on our time any, anyway. And even if we believe there is a God and know that he wants what's best for us, we've decided we're going to give in to our lust anyway. And man reached a point where God was simply grieved. And there's a couple of things that I want you to learn from this text. The first one is this. Sin demands God's judgment. The Lord looked at the earth and he saw the sin that had spread across the land and he brought judgment because of it. The scripture is clear 
when we sin against God, that sin brings his wrath. It brings his judgment. We love the idea of the Jesus died for us on the cross. We, we love the idea of God who loves us and God who pursues us and God who chases after mankind like he did seeking out Adam and Eve, even in the midst of, of their sin in the garden. But let's not forget that when God sought them out, he called them out. He called them out for their sin. I read a story, actually I'd seen a video of a pastor preaching a couple of weeks ago, and I went and I looked up the, the story and, and read the several, about a chapter from this guy's book. The guy's name is John Levere. He's a pastor and an author, and, and he, he told us uh, going to visit Jim Baker in prison back in the early 1990s. Now, many of the younger generation may have heard the name, but you don't know who Jim Baker is. My generation is well aware of who he is. He was the, 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 the one who started uh, the uh, Praise the Lord program. Uh, it really, though he wasn't the, the origin or one of the, the, the founders of the, the Word of Faith movement or the prosperity gospel, he's one who caused it to spread very wide. But he also is a guy who got in all kinds of trouble. He got caught uh, having a couple of affairs, and even after, I believe, the second affair, he ended up still on TV in a satellite ministry preaching the, the health and wealth gospel. But when he really got himself in trouble, was misusing a whole bunch of money that came to him through that, that, uh, his TV program. And he ended up in 1987 having charges filed against him in federal court for embezzlement and fraud. And in fact, it ended up being several dozen charges that he was convicted of. And initially, he went to prison on a 45-year sentence. <laughs> the judge was a Christian, and basically the judge in his sentencing said, look, I'm a Christian, you've made us Christians, you're getting 45 years. Well, eventually on appeal, that sentence was dropped to five years imprisonment for his fraud and embezzlement charges. But while he was in prison, apparently God got a hold of him. Now, I'm not condoning Jim Baker at all. He's still out there and he's still preaching some stuff that I do not agree with, okay? But I want you to hear these words where God did get a hold of him in prison. He, he had read John Bevere's book and he asked John to come visit him in prison. While he was there, he's telling his story. And John, as I remember his words distinctly, he said, John, this prison is not God's judgment on my life, but it's his mercy. I believe that if I'd continued on the path I was on, I would have ended up in hell. Wait a minute. You're a famous prosperity gospel, a preacher of the prosperity gospel, and you're saying that, that now that you're in prison, God's gotten a hold of you, and you look back and you would have ended up in hell had you not gone to prison? Yeah, it's exactly what Baker was saying. He believes that he would have ended up in hell based on his belief and based on what he was preaching. And so the conversation went on for about 20 minutes or so, and... and uh, John Bevere comes back to it and he says, well, Jim, when, you know, you, you committed adultery, that you got caught a couple times in committing adultery and you continue to preach, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? And here's what I want you to hear. Baker said, I never fell out of love with Jesus, but he was not my Lord There are millions of Americans 
who are just like me. And Revere makes the point that though he loved, though Baker loved an image of Jesus, he did not fear God. And one who has a healthy understanding of who God is fears God. If, if, if you just love this image of the Jesus who loves everybody and you miss the point that God hates sin, you've missed the point of the gospel. Jesus died a brutal, horrible death on a cross because of your sin and my sin to pay the price for our sin. I watched a 60 Minutes interview of, of another health and wealth gospel who is still on TV and is still preaching at a very large church down in Houston, Texas. And in that 60 Minutes interview, he said, I don't like to preach about the blood, and I don't like to preach about the cross, and I don't like to preach about sin. I don't like to preach those negative things. I want to just preach things that make people feel good. That kind of preaching will do what, what Jim Baker said in prison. That kind of preaching will land a whole bunch of people in hell who think they're saved. God hates sin. And sin requires the punishment and the wrath of God. The good news for you and for me is that punishment was laid on the shoulders of God's Son who paid the penalty for sin that you and I could not pay. Yes, he died a brutal death. Yes, he bled in a, in a horrible day on that cross on Calvary, and he didn't deserve it. He hadn't earned it. But Isaiah says he took your sin and sin on his shoulders. He paid the price for the punishment of sin so that you and I don't have to. What a great exchange where he took, laid down his for the sin of the world. Nobody else could do that because nobody else had lived a sinless life and nobody else was God in flesh like Jesus was. Don't miss this point. Sin demands judgment. Your sin, my sin demands judgment. But praise be to God, he took our sin on his shoulder. We cannot, the second thing that I want you to see here, we cannot God's gift of life with impunity. God gave life. God gave a, a beautiful garden. God gave a world that we could enjoy. And when we turn our backs on him and ignore him and sin against him, we can't do that without facing consequences. And third, sin brings God sorrow. Scripture says the Lord regretted that he made man, was deeply grieved. Sin grieves the heart of God. At that point, he was so grieved and so sorrowful that God was ready to move on. But God saw one, one man who gave him a glimmer, at least, that all wasn't lost. I want to get to that in just a moment. But let's not move too quickly beyond the fact that sin brings sorrow to the heart of God. You know, when my kids do dumb things, it bothers me. If or when 
one of my kids, even as they're grown, does things to reject what I've taught them, to reject the Lord in some way, or to reject me or their mom, that grieves my heart. I believe that even as his children, and maybe especially as his children, when we choose to not listen to what he says, not wait on him, give in to our lust anyway, when we choose to ignore God and sin against him, it grieves his heart. God is sorrowful when he sees his kids reject him and sin against him. But Noah stood out in this wicked generation. The end of verse 8, which is the, the end of the, this section, and the Scripture simply says, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. That Lord word favor could be translated grace. God saw something in Noah. He, he, he looked upon him with grace. He saw a difference. He stood out among his contemporaries. In fact, when you get into the next section, beginning there in verse 9, the family records of Noah, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries, and Noah walked with God. We live in a wicked, dark generation. That's, that's where I began this message. Not just by talking about what's going on in Asbury, but talking about the circumstances that we find our nation in and our world in. We live in a time that's dark. We live in a time when a national TV show, one of the three networks, you know, when I was a kid, we only had three channels, right? Every once in a while, we might get PBS. So that was four, but I didn't count it because it didn't have anything good on it. So with three channels, and if the president came on that evening, my night was shot, right? Because he was on every channel. That's the world we live in. And one of those channels was CBS. CBS is the broadcasting channel that broadcast the Grammys and was ready to worship the satanic image on their screen. That's how far our nation has fallen. We live in a dark, satanic, mixed-up, messed-up world and culture. Our kids go to schools where they're oftentimes confused. If not, even if they have great teachers, they're confused by other kids in their age group, in their grade, elementary school, who don't gender they are because they live in a world that's telling them that that's their options other than God's design. How do we stand out in a world like that? How can we shine light in a world like that? I think Noah gives us three easy, not easy, three clear images here. Scripture gives us three images of Noah. What made Noah different? First, Noah was righteous. In verse 9, Noah was a righteous man. That word righteousness carries with it a slight hint that's different than the next word. Oftentimes those words are used together. He's righteous and blameless. And that seems almost like Hebrew parallelism. And to be honest, it could be. But I do think that in this context, there's a slightly different nuance to those two words. I'll describe it this way. How many of you have walked into Home Depot or you've walked into a paint store and you're going to pick a white? How easy is it to pick white paint? 
How many different white paints are there when you go to the white section of the paint store? There's all kinds of white paints, right? But you can have a white paint that has a little bit of a blue tint, a white paint, a bit of a green shade, or white paint that has a, has a warm tone to it. You know, I just want white, right? And, and it's hard to find anything. It says white. That's kind of the image here. These two words are pretty similar, but there's a nuance to them. The word righteous is more often used as a relational word, okay? In fact, it carries an overtone in, in some of its uses of being nonviolent. And so the, the word righteous here has moral conduct more often in our relationship with other people. So when Noah is a, described as righteous, it at least carries the tone that he, he interacts and he treats people rightly with righteousness. So he doesn't steal, he doesn't commit adultery, he doesn't lie, bear false witness. It's those kind of relational sins that Noah stands out among the crowd because he's not a thief, he's not an adulterer. You see what I mean? The next word, blameless, very similar idea, but it's a word in, in that he's not covered with sin, but the, but the idea is a little less relational and it's more about integrity. It's more about internal. He's not greedy, okay? which could become relational, but when you get my point, the, the idea here is that Noah, both in how he treated other people and who he was on the inside, was righteous and blameless before God. So how is it that we're going to stand out among this generation? First, we're going to pursue righteousness. We're going to pursue to do what's right in our relationships. And second, we're going to be people of integrity. How we act on the outside is going to be who we are on the inside. So Noah is not sinless. No man is sinless. Scripture makes that clear. But Noah stands out among the crowd because he pursues righteousness and he pursues blamelessness. His life is about seeking to do what's right with other people and about seeking to do what's right between him and his relationship with God. How does Noah get there? And I think that the summary of how Noah gets there is what we see in the next phrase of that verse. He walks with God. Now, it's interesting, the Hebrew order there, you could almost flip that on, the head, on, on his head and say, God walks with Noah. But the point is, they're walking in tandem. Noah walks in a relationship with God. And here's the good news, because all throughout the Old Testament even, man was not considered, Abraham was not considered righteous before God in his eyes because he just did good things. He was considered righteous before God because he had faith in God. Noah had a faith. Noah was walking in a relationship with the living God, and because Noah walked with God, Noah walked righteously and blameless before people. That's how you stand out in this wicked generation. We can't fix everybody else. I can't correct what's going on at CBS. All I can do is be the person God's called me to be. Far too often, we spend far too much time fretting about our culture and not fretting over our own sin. We need to start right here. We need to look and ask that, ourselves that question, how can I stand out like Noah stood out? How can I stand out among my contemporaries? How can I stand out among my friends? How can I stand out among my generation? I'm going to do it when I walk with God, pursue righteousness, and pursue blamelessness, pursue integrity. 
If we do that, we'll look different than our culture. Then, God can use us as a part of his plan. We might be a big part like Noah was. Noah ended up being a big part. He had to build the whole ark. But we may simply be a cog in the wheel of God's kingdom plan. But we cannot be used of God. We will not be used of God to bring revival or bring hope to a dark, wicked world until we walk with God. It begins right here. When we choose to walk with God, holding on to His Word, pursuing righteousness, and seeking integrity, then we'll stand out among the crowd. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.